Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome to all of you. My name is Minoush Shafiq and I'm the Director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And we're delighted to welcome you to this event around Europe's recovery. Now, there are, you can have many debates about Europe's response to the COVID pandemic, but I think there is a consensus that the combined fiscal and monetary stimulus that all European governments and EU institutions provided was a success, and in that it kept job retention high and business insolvency relatively low over the 18 months of the crisis caused by the pandemic. We've now reached a different stage, however, and new questions are emerging. For example, for firms, is it, is it now that most European countries have come out of the moratoria around corporate insolvency, do we expect rates of bankruptcy to skyrocket? Has the stimulus led to a population of zombie firms who've been kept alive by government subsidies and low interest rates during the pandemic, but will they become no longer viable in the post-pandemic world? And are there significant sectoral shifts that will be triggered with the decline of government subsidies? And is the economy about to experience big upheavals? And second, on the labor market side, the focus on households and individuals has been primarily in regard to job retention and keeping people in work. But still, many workers, particularly in some of the larger economies, have chosen to leave their jobs and stay out of the labor market post-COVID. Is this the start of a wider trend? Will we actually see labor force participation around Europe fall? And is this likely to have an effect on inequality of incomes and also between men and women and their labor force participation rates? Thirdly, on externalities. Many European recovery programs, for example, Germany's and France's, have focused on transformation to the green economy. Will this really happen? Or was this just marketing? And how does the political momentum around green issues get translated into a more resilient and competitive European economy in future? And finally, although there's still considerable uncertainty, what can we learn moving forward? What are the main lessons to date from this crisis, both in terms of handling future health crises and future economic shocks? So to discuss these very important issues at this critical juncture in Europe's economy, we have a very distinguished panel who we're delighted to welcome. I'll introduce them briefly and then ask each of them to make remarks for about 10 minutes, and then we'll open it up to a few questions from me and to questions from the audience. Our speakers this today are Luis Gariciano, who's a member of the European Parliament, where he is head of the Suidadanos delegation and vice president and economic co- coordinator of the Renew Group. He's also a professor of economics and strategy on leave from IE Business School. We'll then hear from Stephanie Sancheva, who is Professor of Economics in the Department of Economics at Harvard University. And her work is centered around the long lasting effects of tax policy on innovation, education and and wealth. And then finally, we'll hear from Nikos Vetas, who's the General Director of the Foundation for Economic and Industrial Research and Professor of Economics 
at Athens University for Economics and Business. Just a few logistics. The hashtag for the event this evening is hashtag LSE post-COVID. And please put your questions in the Q&A function. And my colleague, Professor Dimitri Vianos, who's the director of the Financial Markets Group, will pass those on to me and I will read them out to the panel. So with that, let me turn to our first speaker, Luis, over to you. Thank you very much, Director. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here with you. I, uh, you omitted to say that until very, very recently, just a couple of years ago, I was an LSE professor, which is something I'm very proud of. So uh, <laughs> I'm delighted we to are be too. back. We are too. <laughs> so I am, I am very happy to be back here. Uh, and, and to address all of those interesting questions you've put, I, I hope uh, Professor Pizaridis, my colleague Chris, is, is, is doing well and, uh, and wish him the best. Um, the... Uh, uh, many questions you asked, and, and, and before I go to the presentation, I want to address uh, one of them, uh, which is really an important one, because some of my presentation will have some pessimistic views, and, and I do want to address the big positive that, that you did raise, uh, uh, that I think is, is really important, which is that um, Europe, basically, the European Union has put together the main elements of the recovery for their economies and, their, and the health of the citizens. The vaccines have been bought together. Europe. Um, the insurance in terms of ability to borrow all the firms, the liquidity has been provided by Europe. The money that was used to finance the short-term work schemes on which all European workers were, was fully provided by Europe, 100% of it. There was a 100 billion program. And now the money for the recovery is also coming from a joint borrowing by Europe. So in both in terms of health and in terms of health, in terms of jobs, in terms of lives and in terms of jobs, if you want to put it this way, Europe has been essential to coming out of the pandemic. I think it has been the time that the European Union has acted together in the most coherent and most united fashion. Uh, of all of these things, I only want to talk about one, which is the, um, uh, the recovery program, which is the very large stimulus program and, and, and restructuring program that Europe has put together, and that it's designed to have a... Um, joint, a common response, a common recovery for all the European countries. And I want to talk about a dilemma that we confront and that uh, will be familiar to many people in the audience, which is between stimulus and reform. Um, the first possibility, Keynesian stimulus, is, well, let's just get the money out, let's get the shovels ready, and let's just get everybody working. That's one way to see this uh, program. The second way to see this program is let's actually spend the money in a way that eliminate structural bottlenecks and get our economy to grow faster. As you will see, the dilemma between these two aspects um, is, is really at the basis of some of the main difficulties it has. The Recovery Fund is a very large program of 750 billion euros. It's called Next Generation EU. And it is, uh, has been approved at the same time as the ordinary budget for the next uh, seven years. And basically, if you look at the numbers, the 750 billion euros is more or less of the same size as the ordinary budget for seven years. So it's a very, very large amount of money compared to what Europe usually has. Most of the money is in something called a recovery and resilience facility, which is an investment vehicle. Think of the infrastructure program of Biden. It's an investment vehicle to, to in part, fill in the holes in the investment infrastructure. These are very large amounts of money. 
of which Spain and Italy are the main recipients, as you can see here, uh, with 82 billion for Spain and 84 billion for Italy. These are, these are large amounts. If you think about the GDP of Spain is on the order of 1.1 billion euros, 82 billion euros is, is very significant. It's almost eight points of, of GDP. Um, as I was saying, the, 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 my, my introduction is going to be about the dilemma between these two ideas, Keynesian stimulus and a micro, uh, micro plan. When, when uh, Olivier Blanchard was, was, was initially going to, to appear in the workshop, I was thinking of him when I made this slide. He said, uh, Europe should just go fast and spend fast and not go through all these programs. He was on this side. But many of us thought uh, there are really significant structural trouble problems, not just in the European labor market and pensions, et cetera, but also the new challenges, climate digitalization, need investments as well. Um, the idea that reforms are needed is something that I think many people on the panel probably share. I mean, uh, uh, Stephanie has been involved in the French structural reform effort. I think Nikos as well in Greece. Um, the the, the um, idea look at look at the total factor productivity in spain and in italy look at the real gdp per capita basically italy hasn't grown since 1995 in terms of gdp per capita so it's not a question of demand there are some significant deep things in the economy uh, here i show you firm size distribution basically spain if you actually had the same firm size distribution as, as germany spain wouldn't have lower productivity the, the, the big productivity drop happens from the fact that the share of micro enterprises is so much larger. Um, I did a paper with John Van Rinan of the LSE and Claire Lelarge of the NCA of the French Statistical Institute, where we showed the impact and how large it was, this, this gap between the firms at 49. No, the French firms don't want to have 50 workers. So they stopped growing at 49, because when you're 50, you need to involve, to include all sorts of new regulations. It's an AR paper we published a couple of years ago, a few years ago, 16. Um, uh, so, also uh, another example of, of structural problem: temporary employment. Uh, temporary employment. Sorry, the, the amount of people who are on temporary employment is very, very large in Spain, and it has nothing to do with kind of good times, bad times. It's large always. Youth unemployment very, very high. Also, not a demand problem, as you can see there. Dropout rates are high. You can see them here in Spain, Italy, Portugal. Um, in very low investments in R&D, basically economies that invest around 1% of GDP, a little bit more, versus uh, economies like the German one that invest uh, three times as much. So there are structural problems, and Europe has a process, which is called the semester process, where they make recommendations to countries. These recommendations are soft. They just say, oh, you should do this, you should reduce school dropout rates, you should harmonize social services, you should improve the... Uh, um, in public private collaborations, etc. But people say, oh, fine, you gave me this recommendation, that's okay. This recommendation now has become law in a way that I will explain you immediately. The Recovery and Resilience Facility, that's the main recovery program of Europe, is a program that uh, it's part of what I showed you before, the next generation is the biggest part of the next generation, just to remind you, um, the next generation was a total of 750 billion. The recovery and resilience facility is 672 uh, billion out of that. Um, and if you see how much people are asking, it's a direct injection from Europe, not a loan in a big part. It's a grant, so you don't have to give back this part. And then there is also a part of a loan. Countries, all countries have asked for the grants. Some countries have asked for loans, which is this orange part, and some countries haven't. Look at Greece, for example. They are 
investing 18% of GDP in this short period of time, three years, that this program lasts because they're asking for the loans. Italy, 12%. Spain, for example, is only asking for the grant part, so it's more at 6% of GDP. The money can be spent in green, digitalization, competition, and social cohesion, institutional resilience, and youth. As you see, there is a structural reform aspect to how the money is supposed to be spent. And um, there are some conditions. You need to do certain, your plan needs to do certain things in order to be approved. The country presents a plan. Think of a, a structuring plan by a company, right? You go to the bank, you present the plan. You present the countries, present the plan, where they talk about reform recommendations. You remember that soft law I told you? Now it becomes part of the plan that you have to deliver to Europe. And you promise to increase economic growth, to contribute to the green transition with 37% of your spending, to invest in ways that are not negative for the environment, to contribute to the digital transition, and they give you the money. This is in theory. In practice, Europe basically, when they have examined, when the Commission has examined the plan, and I am the scrutiny group in the Parliament, which is looking at these exams. Look at these exams. If, if Minouche saw one of us professors doing this, she would probably think we are cheating on the grading because everybody has an A on the first question, everybody has an A in the second question, and everybody has Bs on the ninth question. It's like a professor who's not really <laughs> making a big of a difference between the, between the students. So all the countries have basically the same exact plans, which means the Commission hasn't really been looking to extract big commitments, I think, largely from the, from the member states. Why? This is the previous president of the Commission with the Minister of Economics of Spain. This is current president of the Commission with the president of Spain. The mood is very different. The Commission hasn't wanted to look mean. It's a bit in the line that, that, that the director was saying at the start of the presentation. Europe kind of had this austerity. Um, Europe felt that it had gone too far. And now Europe wants to kind of contribute to the recovery. And that kind of makes not very credible Europe's commitment to demand action on this recovery plan. So the risk, uh, from my perspective, is that we don't have funds that can be spent very fast. This is how percent of funds, structural funds in Europe, uh, usually are spent in the last seven years. So many countries spend very small percentages, uh, as you see here. Uh, some countries uh, way below 50%. Some countries between 50 and 60 but many countries have a lot of trouble spending the money. And so the money doesn't get spent on the one hand, but it doesn't do the reforms on the other hand. Uh, look at what's happening with investment statistics. The only ones I, I, I have the third quarter for is Spain. But this money should be arriving. We should be seeing an investment boom with the European money. It was signed by Spain in uh, late June. And in July, actually, uh, the first money arrived in August. We should be seeing it getting to the expenditure investment in statistics. And we don't see anything. So the risk is execution is very low. Spain has budgeted uh, $27 billion for this year. Um, some of the numbers I've heard are around a couple of hundred million have been spent. If that's true, that's very, very low. And that's consistent with this very low expenditure. Um, in terms of reforms, on the other hand, the reforms that are being done, higher education is a disaster. Instead of kind of being having better universities, we're going to have worse after the reform. Labor reform is not really improving on both labor tenure and security, nor on collective bargaining, internal flexibility, which is important for a country like Spain. And pensions reform is also not a successful reform uh, in terms of ensuring the sustainability of the system. So my fear is that we will have, uh, we have kind of this dilemma that I talked at the start, this, this tension 
between the commission wanting to tell you, well, spend the money because you are in trouble and you need to recover. And at the same time, the commission and the parliament and the council and the government saying, well, let's try to use this money to eliminate bottlenecks and do the climate transition. And the good scenario is we do both. We spend the money well and we achieve these investment objectives. The bad scenario is the effort to fulfill those conditions stops us from really being able to spend the money on time, and we didn't. We get neither one nor the other part of the dilemma. That's my starting framework to give you a sense of what the recovery money is and, and how those plans work. But obviously, many of the questions the director posed at the start, I would be very, very happy to address uh, on the course of our conversation. I hope I was okay on time. That was great, Luis. Thank you so much for giving us such a good overview of the scale of of fiscal stimulus that's been provided across Europe. Let's turn to Stephanie next. Great. Um, thank you, Louise. This was really illuminating. Uh, thank you very much, Minush, for the great introduction. Um, I wanted to uh, talk about uh, a broad framework to think about what COVID has done to inequality and some guidance from economic research on what, what could be done going forward. And um, something that's important to say uh, at the outset uh, as Lewis made a distinction between immediate stimulus policies versus more longer term structural reforms, the policies that uh, I'm going to talk about here are really medium and longer term actions. They're not short run mitigation strategies, uh, which have already taken place to a large extent. And the reason that we need these is that COVID has exacerbated many existing inequalities. Um, inequalities across income groups, across sectors, across regions, across gender, across children from different backgrounds. And these have not only been deepened, but they also interact with each other. So to just lay the ground on uh, sort of what we know from the data about each of these inequalities, um, on the income inequalities, it's very obvious in, in EU countries and in the US that there's been a much stronger negative impact on lower income households from the pandemic. And so in general, inequality has widened pre-government intervention. At the same time, there's been substantial support from governments uh, that have propped up income, initially in the short run, now also in the medium run. Uh, so post-intervention, um, the inequality increase does not seem large and has been largely muted. But when we think about the long-term impacts, um, the regressive direct impact of the crisis on sort of pre-intervention incomes is likely to persist. And there are many channels that you know, economists have pointed out over time why this is the case uh, when people lose jobs or when uh, people are long-term unemployed or when businesses get destructed, there can be scarring, there can be hysteresis in the economy. In addition, uh, the acceleration of digitization and automation um, typically favors higher skill, higher paid jobs. And so this is something that's likely to have lasting consequences even if the short-term impacts have been muted by policy. Um, one of the vectors for inequalities has actually been this uh, change in the way we work. Um, so remote work has been one of the big evolutions and remote work has been shown extensively over the pandemic, but also before uh, to be actually something that benefits, especially higher paid uh, jobs. Uh, in general, the potential for remote work is much lower towards the bottom of the income distribution. And so if this shift is actually more long lasting, it will not only affect people for different incomes, different sectors differently, but also people across different regions. And so, um, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, has also happened um, that has been very disparate across the income distribution is the unemployment risk. 
so lower income workers were in this sort of dual situation where on the one hand, they were more likely to work in essential positions, which means uh, keep working during the pandemic. At the same time, they're less, less able to work remotely, which is a negative. And so on balance, actually unemployment shocks have gone, you know, have been worse for low income workers. And at the same time, the recovery has been much slower towards the bottom. Uh, so this is again, you know, some statistics that could possibly have a long lasting effect on labor market inequalities. If we, if we think about uh, the digital divide, and Lewis also mentioned this, um, the unequal potential to use technology has been really made very, very salient during the pandemic. Um, there's simple things like disparities in just internet access or just quality of internet access, sufficient and appropriate you know, hardware, software, equipment for all household members. So the result of this, and I think we're still working on figuring out the huge impact this has had, has been really very unequal access to online work, online learning, online maintaining social lives, online services, like you know, deliveries, et cetera. Um, turning to another big type of inequality, which is sectoral and regional inequalities, um, we, we look at them together because they're so intertwined. And you know, sector inequalities have been very much driven by uh, differences in the ability to stay open during the repeating recurring lockdowns, the ability to substitute online for in-person activity, and then whether they're providing some critical services during the pandemic. So if you look at, for instance, the US, uh, small business revenues in sectors such as leisure or hospitality declined very, very sharply, uh, also in retail and transportation. At the same time, uh, not just revenues, but also even you know, venture capital investments in sectors like health uh, or IT companies have really surged. So very disparate evolutions of the sectors. Um, across regions, this has had big impacts too, because sectors tend to be concentrated in different regions. And uh, regions that are in general more rural uh, or poor have been hardest hit for, for many reasons, both in terms of COVID mortality and in terms of economic impacts. Um, and it's still an open question what the long run evolution of these uh, regional you know, uh, differences will be, whether we're gonna go to uh, a whole reshaping of the urban rural divide or suburban uh, divide um, because of the possibilities of remote work. Um, one thing that can't be ignored during this pandemic is the very unequal impacts across gender. Uh, so lots of research was done on this in the last you know, 18 months. Uh, so women experienced more work from home, conditional remaining employed, at the same time, they also experienced much larger increases in unemployment and a stronger reduction in work hours if they remained employed. So some people have coined this term, this she session, which contrary to previous recessions where typically men's employment was hit hardest. Uh, in this case, it's been the reverse uh, where it seems like women's employment was much harder hit. And um, if we look at finally the inequalities for children, um, you know, those are probably the things that will be most long lasting. Uh, so, you know, in childhood every year can, can, can have a huge impact on the future. And so people have documented very large uh, disparities in the time that children could spend learning and learning delays across the income distribution, mainly due to, you know, unequal technical and resource constraints at home and family resources. So very disparate experiences for children during the pandemic and this is possibly something that we'll have to deal with for many, many years ahead. So what we, um, what we did uh, with Danny Roderick uh, for, in a report for um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, um, was to propose some guidance for these medium and long-term policies given all these exacerbations of inequality. Uh, 
And the way we think about policies is using this simple policy matrix, which is basically uh, a way to systematize and classify uh, policy views. So this matrix has rows and columns. So in the rows, it's at which stage of the, at which income distribution part you tend to intervene. Are you targeting the bottom incomes or the middle class or rather top incomes? And then the columns show at which stage of the economy you want to intervene. And here we separate between the pre-production stage, which would be things that happen before you enter the labor market, uh, before firms start operating. So these are things like education, training, um, and also things that affect endowments, like financial endowments, such as the inheritance tax or estate taxes. In the middle, we have this production stage. This is the labor market. This is where production activities happen. And here, policies to act on them range from regulations, such as the minimum wage, uh, and to in-work benefits, but also um, you know, R&D policies, on-the-job training, uh, trade policies, structural programs, etc. And then finally, we have our post-production stage. These are policies that intervene once incomes have been realized. So these are our typical, for instance, progressive taxation and social insurance policies. And what we try to point out is that um, COVID has simply exacerbated some long-lasting structural changes, which are due to, on the one hand, globalization, and the other hand, technological change. These are secular changes, and COVID has sort of you know, increased the speed at which these are starting to have effects. And these changes have had one big impact, which is that they really hollowed out somehow the middle class um, good jobs and good living standards. Um, you know, before in the traditional welfare states, um, policies tended to intervene mainly in the first pillar, pre-production, and in the third pillar, post-production, because the assumption was that anyone with sufficient education could find a good job. And so it was sufficient in a sense to, when you think about inequalities, to act on the third and first pillars. And the second pillar was mainly there to think about competitiveness, economic efficiency. It was an agenda that was very distinct from thinking about inequality in social policies. But today, this seems to be, you know, really, really out of date because this hollowing out of good jobs, of good opportunities, uh, and this cleavage that appears between sort of metropolitan, well-educated, technically savvy elites and people in other regions that are falling behind uh, because of globalization and technological change, that can't be only addressed with the first and third pillar. And so what we advocate for is to think sort of holistically about uh, all these ranges of policies, not load everything on, for instance, just taxes, not load everything on just education, but also think about intervening more directly into the production stage, into the labor market. And to end with some concrete examples of policies, and we can talk about them more during the Q&A, in the first pillar, some of the key policies uh, for which the debate is now starting to happen again, is things that uh, reduce the persistence of wealth across generations. So these are inheritance, estate, or gift taxes. They're very unpopular taxes, and we can show that it's partially due to misunderstanding of how they work and who actually bears them. But there's a lot of arguments to try and reform current systems uh, so that they can be, in a sense, truly progressive, that they don't necessarily penalize, you know, middle-class parents that save hard to leave something to their children uh, and that address concerns with inequality. Another important, of course, um, policy, and uh, Luis also mentioned this, is, of course, education policy, where uh, there's a lot of spending in the EU on education, 
But still, what's what's sort of lacking is a better targeting of public investment towards disadvantaged areas, schools and children. And this idea that you can try to some extent to level the playing field by substituting for missing family inputs. And that goes through providing, you know, trying to equalize the very unequal access to digital resources and also to facilitate a transition into work, specifically in light of the very large youth unemployment in Europe. In the middle pillar, um, the core sort of types of policies that could be very beneficial are what's called employer-focused active labor market policies. So active labor market policies are things like skill training, helping people find jobs, uh, public sector programs, et cetera. They have a mixed record, but what has a very good record is what's called sectoral training programs in the US. And the difference uh, with traditional labor market policies is that they're very much centered on the employer. They involve the employer. So one example is, for instance, Project Quest in San Antonio. They are basically geared towards local employers' needs. They cooperate closely with them, even on the design of the curriculum of the training. Uh, they have specific training also on soft skills, which have been shown to be so important. They track people, even post-training, during employment. And they're typically run by communities and or private agencies locally. So we think that could be a very good template for what to do in many European countries. Um, and so this goes hand in hand with business incentives that are focused on creating good jobs. Uh, so instead of just focusing, as is often the case today, uh, on just subsidies for physical investment and in new technology, which are great and are needed, to also directly try to incentivize businesses for good job creation, make that sort of one of the objectives uh, of, the, of the policies. Um, and so there's some very good suggestions by, uh, by Tim Bartik uh, on how to focus on areas that are distressed, on how to center around jobs that around sectors that have job creating potential and not only use tax incentives, but rather a whole bundle uh, like customized business services, zoning and infrastructure policies and local amenities. And again, all the skill training we just mentioned. And the final pillar in just the last 30 seconds here is on the taxation part really, this, this last pillar on what to do. And here, there's some really promising developments um, that can help countries raise more revenues in a better way as will be needed. So the goal is not to increase taxes, the goal is to tax better. And there's many suggestions that have been made in many recent developments. So one, one important development, for instance, has been the major improvements in international cooperation through the automatic exchange of information, which makes it much easier now to track taxpayers' capital income across countries and to potentially improve the taxation of capital and improve compliance. And on the, uh, on the question of how to make the tax administration more efficient and reduce fiscal leakages, again, there have been many great suggestions such as expanding third-party reporting, especially for difficult to catch income like private businesses or partnerships, leverage all these new methods and data analytics, machine learning and AI to actually reduce non-compliance and also just very simply give more resources uh, to tax administrations to update their often outdated technology infrastructure and analytical capacities. And one thing that has been incredibly promising and that is a huge potential source of revenue that's currently wasted is the issue of uh, multinational taxation. And um, the last few months have seen enormous progress through the OECD's uh, base erosion and profit shifting framework and the minimum taxes that have been implemented. And these policies are you know, very promising because they address both a revenue need, but also an important fairness concern that people have with this idea that companies benefit in good times 
or they're bailed out when the government, by the government when things get tough, but they don't, they don't necessarily, to many, in many people's minds, contribute enough to the common revenue pool. And so I'll end here. Um, I hope this was a useful overview of how we think about these uh, various inequalities and policies to target them and looking forward to the questions and comments. Thank you very much, Stephanie. That was incredibly helpful and gave a lot of nuance to the, to the inequality consequences of what is happening now. Let's turn to Nikos. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll try to, to, to present some scattered thoughts. Uh, the, the topic is too big to do justice uh, in, in a few minutes. But it's also very important, extremely important for where Europe may be going. Um, we all know that Europe has had its weaknesses in the last few decades. Um, it, it is probable that the, the US economy and parts of Asia are coming out of the crisis uh, more dynamic than Europe does. So the question of what um, all this money that's going to be spent and the way that uh, Louis in particular presented it, um, the, the questions may be three. Are we spending, are we just spending more money and then our children, grandchildren have to pay that? Uh, the second question is, um, is Europe going to come more united out of this? Uh, remember, we almost had the Eurozone crisis just a few years back. Um, and the third question is uh, about the global um, division of labor and um, what, what Europe will be, uh, how productive and how competitive it's going to be. Um, let me share just a few uh, slides uh, with you, if I may. So, um, and, and as I said, my, my thoughts will not be completely uh, organized, but I hope at least a couple of them may be useful. So the first thing to say is uh, the money is, is significant. It's very significant. Uh, Louis showed uh, um, the analogy for, for at least some countries, the money is huge. But in my view, uh, the most important part is, uh, is the signaling role that this money already has had. So in some sense, half of the battle has been, has, has been won um, before we even implement. Uh, the fact that it has been demonstrated uh, that Europe can move in this direction is half of the battle. It's not all the battle, but it's half of the battle. Uh, it's also very promising that we have put uh, reforms at the same level of investment. The reforms, of course, uh, mean different things uh, to different people. Uh, there is also a very interesting uh, debate we can have as to what extent reforms and investment are substitutes or one is needed for the other. Um, however, um, when it comes to the monitoring stage, which is starting just now, uh, we're going to see how this works uh, on, on the ground. Now, on that, uh, already there were a few very interesting insights presented, uh, especially by uh, Louis. Um, you know, everyone has its, you know, their ideas shaped by background. Um, I've, I've had the uh, chance to be in Greece during three rescue and uh, finance uh, programs from 2010 through 2018. And it has been almost eight years, maybe slightly more, 
uh, of continuous monitoring by European and other institutions. And the idea was we're going to give you money so that the country moves ahead, um, but you have to reform. I put the word uncertainty there uh, on purpose. Um, one of the things that went wrong, several things went wrong during these programs. Eventually, some things went well. But some of the things that went wrong was that there was massive uncertainty uh, about the direction of the program on the ground. Uh, bureaucrats on all sides were arguing until very late in uh, midnight uh, every week. Um, that's not something that I think we will see, but it's certainly something we should avoid uh, to have this multiplied by every uh, EU member state. It's still interesting to think about whether the plans add up um, the linkages, investment in one country, what, what they're going to do in other countries. There are certainly certain sectors in Greece and other smaller economies um, such as energy, transport, where investment decisions there are primarily going to generate production and jobs elsewhere in Europe. So it, it's not completely clear to me that the adding up has been done, either in this positive light, that there are externalities, positive externalities from one plan to the other, but there are also some worrisome um, questions such as um, pretty much every country argues is going to grow, every economy argues is going to grow uh, through more exports. Uh, but European economies, to a large extent, tend to export to one another. We cannot all increase our net exporting positions at the same time. Um, the two, um, perhaps the most crucial part, and to, to this I'm coming closer um, to Stephanie's presentation, but from a different viewpoint, is the type of inequalities that the programs can help eliminate or the programs can help uh, strengthen. And uh, I don't have much to say about uh, gender inequality or young or, or, or across generations. Um, but there is also a story to be said about those that, because they have stronger political capital, they're going to be closer to the source of money, whereas those that don't have this political capital will be left out of the money, and therefore they may come out of this uh, weaker. So let me come now to a few details, uh, just, just very few, and then um, come back to the big EU uh, picture. But I want to show a couple of slides about Greece. Um, you know, we know from Tolstoy and Dana Karenina that, um, how does this go? All happy families are more or less the same. Every unhappy family is a little bit different or something like that. So let me tell you a few things about uh, the unhappy family called uh, the Greek economy. Uh, Greece uh, was one of the first countries that put in front of uh, Brussels their um, plan. Um, it, it seems uh, it is, uh, it's a good plan, but as Louis said, pretty much every plan seems it's a good plan on paper. Um, all the details, you know, there are little boxes here to, to, to be opened. 
I'm going to, rather than opening up the boxes, I'm going to say a few um, things that come out of work that we did um, under the um, coordination of uh, Chris Pisaridis, that, uh, for whom I'm filling in uh, this evening. And perhaps Chris can add details in subsequent uh, events. Um, so we were asked um, by the Greek government, in fact, by the office of the prime minister, to, to write down um, some growth ideas uh, for Greece. Uh, Dimitri Vajanos, that you know from LSE, and also Kostas Megir at Yale, were also uh, leading parts of the team and some other colleagues. Now, here is the picture for Greece. Um, blue is up. Um, and then you see that these uh, years of high real GDP growth, and this includes uh, the years where Greece became part of the Eurozone, were subsequent followed by some really terrible years of cumulative recession of about 25%. Those were the programs I was telling you. Greece naturally was not the only country that got into programs. Uh, there was a large part of the EU periphery and then as the economy started getting into the positive again, then we were hit by the new COVID crisis. So the question is how you read this and how you use uh, the money, which is only a small part of the uh, investment gap that has been generated. So there was a report that we, we published. The report had um, two key numbers on which it was based. One was productivity trends, as you can imagine, we are economists. Uh, so there are all sorts of nice graphs that can show how the economy may have been uh, derailed in the first years of joining the Eurozone. And then the adjustment that was made uh, during the programs and what is needed so that uh, the economy gets back to a strong uh, growth uh, path. The other for which I don't have a slide right now, I could, but I don't have the time, um, is labor force participation. And the picture there is, is very weak. Um, I believe only Italy comes, um, comes close. Uh, labor force participation pre-COVID was weak in Greece, especially by women. And uh, joining this uh, with Stephanie's idea, uh, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen to labor force participation, especially in different parts of the population coming out. All this leads to three things that I'm going to show and what the, the current program uh, that has been put in front of Brussels is trying to tackle. One is the economy is quite introvert. Um, if you compare, for instance, Greece with two other nine uh, EU members, in terms of how much it is exporting as part of its GDP, you see that the average number here on the right for these nine other similar size economies is about 65% of GDP, whereas Greece exports um, less than 40% of GDP. It, this has to do with uh, geography, no doubt but it also has to do with the structure of the economy, especially the smaller size of, of firms um, and, and high regulatory um, uh, burden. This, lead, this has led in the past to a derail of uh, trade balance and, and, and current account. 
um, to a very large investment gap the last years. And then the question is, um, if you do have money, what you do with this money? Our idea is that um, you should do two things. You should try to focus on boosting employment through increase, for instance, in the um, uh, labor force participation, but also otherwise. We, we, we have been particularly focused on what you can do to support uh, female labor force participation and, and, and younger people. And then what you can do on productivity. If you multiply now these things, you come up with a story where from really low numbers, including now also uh, the funds, but also what private funds, these funds are gonna leverage, this can lead over the next 10 years to a pretty good picture for Greece. Now, you may say, who cares about Greece? First of all, I care. Um, and some other people care. But this is a story that has to do with whether they, you can come out of this also more united. Because if it comes with countries and economies moving in all different directions, then in four or five years from now, um, no doubt we're going to see some, some new uh, crisis. I'm, I'm concluding uh, with two sets of ideas. For many countries, certainly for Greece, but my view is also for Europe, the next two or three years are going to be relatively easy. Uh, money will continue to be relatively cheap. Uh, we have an investment gap to fill. Um, employment uh, can go up. Um, and, and there is also this EU money. The question is what happens after the effect of these positive factors um, reduces. So three or four years from now. So this is gonna be completely valuable time that has to be used um, effectively. Uh, this, this refers to everybody, uh, people on the ground, businesses, obviously the politicians. Otherwise, we, are, we will have to take a very uh, long look on how Europe is going to look three or four years uh, from now. Final remarks. The recovery fund and everything around it has been a positive step for Europe. But Europe has been coming into the crisis weaker than other parts of the world. And it is unclear that right now um, it, it, it definitely um, and in a very persuasive manner can claim that uh, its competitiveness vis-a-vis uh, -vis this other part of the world is going to go up. It's a big question mark. How close the core and the periphery are going to work in the next two or three years is also a big question mark. The, the recent moves, no doubt, is, is a positive step. Uh, going out to the markets and borrowing, um, grants, uh, coordination, but we are not there yet. Uh, unless we move, for instance, to, um, to a common policy vis-a-vis -vis our banks, um, and so on and so forth, 
we we are only going to be uh, looking at trouble in in the future. Then there is the issue of uh, old versus new economy. This refers, even if you go sector by sector, energy, um, new versus old is huge. Um, cars, a huge part of Europe is gonna, manufacturing in Europe, especially Germany and around, refers to decisions that are gonna be made about what type of cars we're gonna have and so on and so forth. Mm. And eventually, this leads to what sort of fiscal rules we're going to have. The discussion is, is serious and ongoing. There are those that believe that the 60% and the 3% rules in the Eurozone, they're just too far away from reality. But how do you write the new rules? How you implement them? Um, are you gonna make exceptions about uh, green and digital and uh, human capital? or are you gonna put everything in one basket? This is a discussion that in my view, we should be having already. Um, and uh, it, it seems to me that we are only, uh, that we haven't really started. Can Greece grow in this context? My last uh, sentence. Um, the complementarity between investment and reforms is, is the key to the extent that um, money in economies like Greece, and I could actually list another at least 10 or 15 economies in Europe like this, to the extent that the new funds are going to strengthen the existing structure of the economies and just do that, I believe that's the wrong direction. Um, there is a window of opportunity, there is a chance, that this money is in fact going to create um, new pockets in the economy. Um, it's, it's not going to be uniform growth, but it's gonna help uh, transform. But this is as much an economics question as, as it is a, a, a politics question. Mm -hmm. I'm closing with this and uh, happy, of course, to participate uh, in uh, Q&A and further dialogue. Thank you, Nikos. Thank you for giving us a sense of what the recovery program looks like from the perspective of Greece and what the wider lessons could be. So I'm going to ask the panel two questions. Um, and maybe I'll just come to each of you uh, to, to respond. The first question is the dilemma between uh, I think, Louise, you started by, you know, stimulus versus reform. And there is a real risk, uh, and you all hinted at this, that the stimulus, this, this massive amount of resources that's been given to stimulus, simply preserves old jobs and preserves old firms and kind of keeps the, show, the current show afloat for a few more years. Nikos referred to a couple of more years. Um, without actually transforming the European economy in a structural, profound way. Um, and the fact that the levels of spending of the current programs already seems a bit slow is worrying in that sense. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about how can we make sure that this fantastic opportunity to transform Europe's economy actually 
has structural consequences. And how can we, you know, I'll just give a small example. In the UK context, I remember thinking they had a furlough scheme very similar to Europe's, which paid people to stay in the same jobs. But if you made those furlough, that furlough money portable, so people could move to new jobs, you would have accelerated the shift in the labor market to the jobs of the future rather than preserving the jobs of the past. And I just wonder whether there are other things like that that we could think about that would encourage this to be a transformative moment rather than a keeping things afloat for a bit longer moment. That's my first question. My second question is um, everyone in Europe is talking about, is this the Hamiltonian moment for the European Union? Will this be the moment when uh, risks are pooled and shared, whether it's fiscal, banking union, et cetera? Um, and, and I always remember Angela Merkel saying, you know, why do we, rather than bail each other out, why don't we invest together? Uh, and the appetite to investing together as opposed to paying off each other's debts is, is quite high. And this recovery program is a lot about investing together and investing in each other. And so my question is, again, how do we, what, what are the politics and economics around making this a Hamiltonian moment around investment and recovery rather than bailouts? So maybe I'll start, Luis, maybe I'll start with you and then Stephanie and then Nikos. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start. It was, it was very interesting to hear my colleagues. I would like to hear more Nikos later, if, if that's okay, if there's a moment on how the plan was, was, was come together. And, and I think Stephanie also kind of participated in the plan in, in France, to what extent was politics and to what extent was economics or expertise. Uh, I would be curious about that. Um, so the two questions are indeed very related. Because to the extent that the money is transformative, I think it's more likely that we have a Hamiltonian moment. Yes. What I mean by this is that um, if this opportunity is wasted, if people feel we're sort of kind of graft and corruption and money spending, kind of keeping things the same and nothing really being done with it, it's very hard that Europe will decide that this is the first step of something. So in a way, Europe has kind of waded into this pool and stuck his foot in there to see how cold the water was. Mm. That's great. Um, and the responsibility of the countries getting these massive amounts of funds is to spend it well. Um, because I think for it to be a Hamiltonian moment, what you really need is, uh, okay, you, I think you need several things. You need to issue debt together. We did that. Uh, it has to be permanent, so that issuing the ability to issue debt as a as a continent has to continue. Um, you need to uh, have a common uh, backing for this debt, and that's the EU budget. And you need to have revenue in Europe to pay back the debt. So one thing that Hamilton did, right, is that he said, "Look, we're going to assume all the debt of the south and the north, put it all in the same box, move the capital to the south because the south here was the creditor, so they needed some reward." And we're going to have federal income, to, I mean, over some years. It's not just the federal, the Hamiltonian moment is not one year, it's a century. But anyway, we're going to have uh, taxes that flow to the center. Federal income taxes much, much later, but many other uh, sources of revenue. Europe doesn't have any sources of taxes. And Europe doesn't have their own source of revenue. We did have them at the start with the UK rebate. The formula changed, and it was more about calculating how much each person, each country gets in and gets out, 
So it became much more of a negotiation about how much money we put. So Europe doesn't have their own source of revenues. They must say United Nations. <laughs> it has to go to all the countries and ask for money, which is a very bad way to, 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 to source yourself with, with funds and definitely not a Hamiltonian way. So if we want to issue this revenue and if we want to continue issuing this debt in the future and being able to invest it together, the three elements, then we're going to have to do this first stage well. To me, what does doing this first stage well mean? It means we need to spend the money, we need to spend it cleanly and without corruption, but it needs, it needs something more to be transformative, which I think it's, it's something Stephanie said very much, which is human capital, training, education. The biggest impact of this crisis has been uh, kids from lower income and backgrounds, etc., not having classes in some countries, months, in the U.S., sometimes years. I mean, our colleagues in the East Coast tell us of systems. Maybe Stephanie has colleagues who've complained about kids being at home for a whole year or two years. I mean, something crazy. Yeah. Um, obviously, in private schools, that hasn't happened. So it's public schools that have done that. And there are kids going to public schools who've lost a year, two years. There are people in training who need, who need to go back to jobs and need training. Um, I think the thing that most important uh, ultimately needs to be done with these recovery funds is to, digitalization is not about buying computers, sorry for interrupting. It's not about buying computers. It's about training people to use them and to be able to live in this world. And, and I fear that because the money needs to be spent fast and because there's this trend to use it as stimulus and this pressure to use it as stimulus, I have this fear that it will be more uh, bricks and mortar and investment in things rather than investment in people. And transformative to me means investing in people. Yeah, very good point. Right. Stephanie. Um, yes, no, these are these are excellent and tough questions. I think it's a it's really a matter of horizon too. So normally we think of short-run interventions as being very much, you know, bail out, patch the things up, because especially with a huge hit of the pandemic, it was incredibly urgent to prevent, you know, business relations from breaking down, prevent businesses from altogether failing, uh, maintaining employment. And so that that's a very, very good and rational thing to do in the short run. Um, I think Louise is pointing at that too, that it's it's not necessarily great if this emergency uh, attitude spills over into the medium and longer run when actually much more profound, you know, structural changes are needed. And I think that's that's why we, um, we also think about these... Uh, these three pillars along which changes are needed. Um, and yes, one of the key ones is very much like the center pillar, the, the production stage, very much requires proper training and these active labor market policies that help actually create good jobs because that is something which has been you know, chronic in a sense, not just in Europe, also in the US, um, this structural decline of, of really good employment opportunities, not just any job, but jobs that provide you know, sufficient, sufficient wages, um, that provide some career progression, a good work environment, things that if you ask people, they truly care about. You know, it's not just about it's not just about the pay. Um, pay matters a lot, but you know, opportunities, career progression, some autonomy, basically what what people say is a good job is really declining. Um, and um, uh, can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. I think my video froze. Yes, your video froze, but we can hear okay. you. I'm still here. Um, and so, you know, I think this is this is very much something that's uh, uh, that's going to be incredibly needed, and to make up for the huge, 
huge misses in education uh, that are so unequal is also going to be a huge challenge. Let's turn to Nikos next. Well, as Stephanie said, you're asking tough questions. Um, I, I, on the one hand, I think that Lewis is right. Um, and if, if, if we don't do the job well with this opportunity, it's going to be really hard three or four years from now to argue that the relation has to, has to deepen. So um, th this is crucial. But now the question is, um, what, what does it mean to do the job right? Because perhaps in, if we invest on more superficial things, the average voter might be happier, uh, so they might want to support more of this. Uh, whereas if we do harder things, then the fruits may come five or 10 years down the road um, when it is, might be too late for politics. So we need to find a balance of that. Um, I also think that um, it's very important in some sense that we have re that, that um, those who are the, the politicians and communicate with, with the people, they, um, they communicate uh, realistic expectations. Uh, the fact that this money is now going to be spent and the fact that we're coordinating um, is, is very important, but it, this also comes as a response to a very difficult situation. Europe has been investing very little and has been not competitive enough for, for several years getting into COVID, and COVID has been a very deep wound. So to expect that we are going to do great in the next few years, um, if, if we set the bar there and then people will look into their pockets three or four years from now and say, no, we are not doing great. But well, th this is, yes, but if we haven't done that, you would have been much worse. This is a much more difficult uh, political message uh, to, to put across. Um, the one thing that so, so you do have to create a reasonable optimism and a good balance between keeping people uh, happy so that their standards of living do not go down, but at the same time create um, in the, the conditions so that productivity goes up for our uh, children. Yeah. It's our children that when we borrow, we'll have to pay back. Um, one, one final word which can be poisoned. Is, is bureaucracy. Um, and bureaucracies have, um, have a way, of course, to replicate themselves. Um, it, it should not be allowed that this, uh, these programs uh, generate new bureaucracies. You know, as Luis indicated, it's like as if we doubled the, the budget of, of, of the union of, overnight. Um, if it runs in a very bureaucratic manner, uh, th this might be uh, a problem. So um, you, you have to think about uh, this balance. Um, the fact that you know, there are these concerns doesn't mean that overall the direction is not correct. It is. 
So uh, your final point, Nikos, on, on bureaucracy is actually uh, leads me very nicely to the first question, which comes from Dimitri Korpakis, a former official in the EU. And uh, Dimitri says that one of the characteristics of all the uh, recovery plans is that they're conceived as huge top-down planning initiatives, ignoring almost completely the regional or local level. What can this tell us for, the, for their future success when we know that to be successful, any plan needs to win adherence and engagement by local communities? Who would like to take that one on? Luis, do I, do I sense you wanting to reply? Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to reply. I think it has to do with politics. I mean, I think that that's a big government having a, just a very sweet, you know, present from Europe of the ability to spend over the next two or three years, short horizon, a very large amount of investment funds, doesn't want to necessarily share all the credit with many other governments. So there, there's a tendency there indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the hurry, the fact that things have to be done fast. But I totally agree that if you don't involve the recipients, you're unlikely to succeed. I think there has been a lot of learning on all these structural reform programs, not just in Greece, but India went through huge structural reforms, many other countries. And and there has been a lot of of learning about the need to uh, involve involve the communities and involve the regions and involve the local governments. Um, And I do think that the risk that this official is is pointing out is is, is there, that uh, once they big, beautiful plan that everybody liked and it was very well negotiated, gets into action. If the community was not involved, then uh, then it's, 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 it's likely that it won't be well spent because nobody really asked for the local knowledge. I think that the way around that, uh, I think I liked very much something in the French plan, um, which is that they had, a, they had a website and they gave money to small and medium enterprises. They said, I don't know if Stephanie has seen this, this, this plan, which is, is very nice. It's a few billion euros worth. So you have this website, uh, you have all the people who offer digital services like training and making you a web page, et cetera. And you get this money to the, to the little businesses, to the shopkeepers, to the uh, small you know, professionals and plumbers. And, and they kind of go to the site to, to bid and to ask for services that they want to buy. So they go to check and they want to buy these services. And I like much more this kind of approach. It says, okay, we'll give you a check and we, we use some training. I remember in that French site, there's a little diagnosis tool. So you can go there and they can tell you whether you need help with a web page or you need help with electronic commerce. You have a web page already, but nobody can buy your services online. Nobody can find them. So they can give you this kind of help. And I like that kind of decentralized approach much more. But indeed, many of the programs seem much more like a big program that that is is, is designed to spend a lot of money very quickly. Stephanie Nikos, did you want to add anything, or should I move to the? Uh, Look, um, yeah, I'm not sure. the The, the question sounds like one where you are tempted to say, "Yeah, you are right." Okay, you have to involve everyone, and you know it has to be bottom up, etc. But the, the truth of the matter is that the, the rules um, are so strict and the timing is so little mm. that you you cannot be um, you know as comprehensive uh, as perhaps you want. The the other thing is, and 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 that's also a little bit of a dangerous idea that perhaps I'm going to say. Um, not everything, not everyone can, and not everybody should benefit equally. 
Um, I, I think what the plan can do is to, to create the opportunity for, for those who are willing uh, to, to move forward. And um, just to give you a very small example, you know, we, we, we are all academics here. Um, countries have different, have lots and lots of universities. You know, to, to insist that all universities will rise uniformly and you're gonna, you know, everyone is gonna have access to the same amount of money. That, that's not gonna work. Um, put the rules there, be creative with the rules, and those who can actually use these rules more effectively can move ahead, and, 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 and that's fine. I don't want to sound cruel with what I'm saying, but um, once, once people see success, um, then this also motivates others. I mean, I think in any fiscal allocation mechanism, you have to combine both need and performance. So you allocate to those who need it the most, but also those who can perform. And it's that magic combination that a good fiscal allocation system uses. Let me turn to the next question, which is Osvaldo Feinstein, who's an LSE visiting professor. And he notes that Luis mentioned the superficial examination of the plans, uh, the fact that everyone got an A grade, which would never happen at the London School of Economics, as you well noted, Luis. Uh, could it be possible to involve professional evaluators in the process of reviewing uh, implementation for accountability and learning? So I think he's referring to, okay, we gave everyone an A for their plan, but now should we grade them a bit more rigorously for their implementation? Yes, yes. I would like to hear on the allocation of Stephanie, who's an expert on that. Maybe she has something later to say. But um, uh, on the grading, um, yes, I think that, that it was inevitably a political process. I mean, the treaties say that the commission cannot give this kind of grading, grading kind of uh, ability to somebody else uh, because the money, the money is the responsibility of the commission. The commission could have asked somebody to propose grades, but they would still have had this ultimate authority. Um, it's, a political, it's a political decision, and it was clearly political, as we can see uh, from, the, from the actual grades. Um, can they involve experts in the evaluation of the milestone? So now the countries, in order to receive money, this is just an important thing that I, I didn't say in the, in, the, in the talk, but basically what is different about this money versus previous money is that normally in the past you get a subsidy and then you do a row. This money now is performance-based money, which means you do something that you've promised to do in your plan, and if you do it well, you get the money. So somebody has to decide whether you reach that milestone, that target. And it would be good to have some external information on that. I think it's going to be very hard. For the reasons I said about Keynesian stimulus, it's going to be very hard for the commission when it comes down to it to say, well, sorry, your labor reform doesn't work. I'm not going to give you the money. Because then suddenly a country will, you know, there's so much investment, so much staff depending on it. It will be, I think it will be a big shock for the country. So the commission will always try to find a reason to pass the student if, if the analogy uh, serves as well because the student always has some extenuating circumstances. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. So, so I think that some external, some separation between the evaluator and the one who actually gives the money uh, could be a, a good, a good thing indeed. But I am, I am doubtful that that can be that, that can be done. Stephanie, did you want to come in on this? Um, no, I think the the answers were already great. 
Okay, great. Uh, let me turn to the next question, which comes from uh, Mariana from Credit Suisse, who asks, what will be the role of funds that might come from the EU Green, Green Deal in paying off the, recover the RRF recovery program in the longer term? And who would like to take that one? I'm happy to answer in terms of, I mean, the, 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 um, the, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's paying off. I mean, the 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 funds are designed. Thirty-seven percent of the money is designed. It's obligatory for every plan in every country to use thirty-seven percent of the money for the Green New Deal. It's supposed to be used uh, to invest in the climate change challenge, and that's, I think, exactly for the reason you said that Merkel and the other leaders are much happier to help other countries invest in being greener than to help countries deal with some past problems they might have had. So there is a, there is a sense that, that the climate emergency justifies a lot of this spending. And it's true that, uh, that we will issue green bonds for that. Maybe that's what Richard's person was pointing out. We will issue quite a bit of green bonds, uh, but every single, I mean, every single plan in every single country is actually oriented towards fulfilling our Green New Deal obligations and, and targets, uh, decarbonization, et cetera, et cetera. So it will actually be uh, oriented in that, in that way. Well, 37%. Okay. I've got a question now, which is really a, um, a, an intra-European balancing question. It's from uh, Michael, who's an LSE student. And he says, uh, he wants to discuss, ask a question about the unresolved political economy legacy, really, from the Eurozone crisis. He says, since the Eurozone crisis, peripheral Eurozone states instilled crippling austerity measures to offset external imbalances in the current and capital accounts with countries like Germany. But these structural reforms have been terribly one-sided adjustment. Is there room for Germany and other surplus net lending European countries to adjust toward that of the peripheral states? And is convergence and sustained prosperity a possibility even without Germany, Benelux, Australia adjusting. So, uh, and another version of that question is always, you know, do the do the triple A countries need to do more fiscal in order to help the the countries who are in the so-called periphery? Any reactions to that? And Stephanie, I might put you on the spot because you're the fiscal person. <laughs> I was going to say this is more of a political question, so I would defer to the actual policymakers here. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, Nikos, you've probably thought about a lot about this in the context of Greece. I, I have, but I'm not a policymaker, so that goes back to Louis. <laughs> I, I, I have thoughts, but... Um... Please, give us your thoughts, and then we'll turn to Luis. Okay, first of, first of all, to be honest, al already what, we're, what we see is a little bit of that. Yeah. Right? The, so so th this, is, this is the AAA countries uh, sharing... Um, their credit with, with others. Now, the, the question is um, which way this is going to go down the road because we did this at a time of, of, of extreme emergency. Um, I, I want to connect the answer here to, to something that Louis said, which has to do with, you know, um, how harsh can we expect that people are going to be when grading uh, the performance? Because it, it, indeed, you know, the, the money is, is, is gonna, um, going to be paid after the job is done. So it's really, you know, have, have you done this or that? Um, but I think 
that in, in addition, it, it, it doesn't have to, I mean, you, you can be effective even if you don't stop the flow of this money by sending some signals. Um, why I'm saying this is because countries still are going to need a massive amount of other money. They still need to go out and, and borrow. Uh, Greece for sure, Italy, God forbid. Um, you know, the large countries, the small countries. So the signals that are going to come from how the program progresses. So whether you're going to get an A or an A minus or an A today and an A after, you know, three weeks of negotiation, these signals are going to be viewed by the global markets. Um, so this money here is a lot, but it, it's peanuts relative to the overall funding uh, needs. Um, I, I, I don't know if Stephanie and Luis agree with that. So, so the way it's going to be handled, it's, it's going to have a signal in the role. Okay, very good. Stephanie, Luis, did you want to add anything on that pan-European question? And I think we'll wrap up after that. No, I'm, I'm I'm happy with with the with the answer. I do think that indeed uh, it's it's kind of quote old fashioned to say Germany is not doing anything in the sense that uh, they have supported this joint fiscal expansion, which they are doing in part yes. themselves. So I think it's a partly a response to that criticism that has uh, led to the 750 billion dollar euro borrowing facility that is actually shared by all yeah. this country in the European Union. I agree. I agree. I mean, I think very much that this this whole recovery plan is a little bit of. I think. I think you started with this, Luis. This is a little bit of the antidote to the age of austerity yeah. in Europe. Yes, yeah, I to think. try and move to a I different so. policy regime. I mean, there's much more to go, and the question of what happens to the European fiscal targets, the deficit, you know, that all has to be resolved at some point. But this is already a very big step in a new direction. Exactly. And, um, exactly. I think I think it is a very critical moment. Your your comments and your your presentations really highlighted the opportunity and the risks uh, and the things that Europe needs to do to make sure that this opportunity is one that results in a lasting transformation. And so, uh, thank you very much for your presentations. Thank you to the audience uh, for uh, for your questions and your participation. And uh, and let's all see what happens in the years ahead, and and hope for uh, hope for a positive outcome. Thank you all we, for joining us. Thanks to you, and I hope uh, soon we will be able to do this in person at LSE, which is absolutely which is, you're all invited. <laughs> Come to the LSE. <laughs> Hopefully, whenever this virus leaves us alone, because it seems like in Europe is not looking fantastic now. Uh, anyway, thank you. Uh, great. Thank you thank again, you everyone. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.